0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the 20 First Stocks podcast. My name is Colin Snell. Thank you so much for tuning in. This week, I had the chance to speak with SJ Beard, who is a program manager and researcher at Cambridge's Center for the Study of Accenture Risk. I had SJ on about a month ago. SJ is one of my absolute favorite people in the entire world to talk to. Uh, potentially in the entire future of humanity as well, um, given the importance and weight of existential challenges we're facing this century. Uh, And I cannot thank SJ enough for coming on and for informing my approach to X-Risk so widely and and, and, and so much. And today's discussion that we're bringing to you is no different. Uh, We talked about why people decide to do this work and ways of looking at existential risk work, you know, this fight to preserve and further... human future like why people decide to do that because talking about things like artificial general intelligence and nuclear weapons and climate change and all these big issues facing us let alone uh bio risk issues uh talking about this stuff is really really scary and i am hoping to release some content in the future that talks about my early early approach to these things and it was very very heavily filled with fear when i was younger and it wasn't until I started encountering the ideas within existential risk and the community, especially, that I saw how many rational reasons there were not for blind hope, but for realistic rationalism or, and realistic optimism. Right. And that is, I think, what today's conversation really got the heart at. We talk about how ethics evolve over time and about a lot of the ethical background that helped to bring about this field of intellectuals and researchers and thinkers and some of the world's most, you know, wonderfully brilliant scientists coming together and going, hey, how can we make sure that we don't die this century? And how can we make sure that billions, if not trillions of future people can come about and actually live in the same universe that, that we are today and can have the same opportunities that for flourishing that we have today while also uh, democratizing the number of, uh, of people who are actually able to, uh, to live flourishing lives, right? So that's what existential risk is about. That's what effective altruism is about. It's about bringing about the most good that's possible. And that takes looking at the biggest, most scary, most challenging things staring us down head on. And it's understandable that a lot of folks who are engaged with that can see that as a uh, very depressing enterprise, but it is deeply, deeply meaningful. And is at the heart of my approach to life now. And that's because the meaning and joy and you know absolute vibrant brilliance that you know I, you, you feel when engaged in this field uh, is, is, is just so high. It's just it's so wonderful. It feels so, so meaningful. And it's critical to my meaning. And meaning motivates, as we say here at 21st talks, So I hope that you find some meaning in today's conversation and not just one, some wonderful ideas uh, from one of my favorite ethicists alive. Uh, And once again, thank you very much to SJ. And I hope you guys like, rate and subscribe on this episode. It really helps us and our team out. Uh, And without any further ado, here's my conversation with SJ Beard from Cambridge's Center for the Study of Existential Risk. Uh, Thank you all. I'll see you guys next week in terms of uh, uh moral psychology and moral decision making which obviously is really precedent uh, really pertinent to um, the fields of effective altruism and eccentric risk um there's this concept just for the audience at home um, of uh, the situation that you're in while making the decision um, has seems to have a very very strong um, amount of data supporting um, its influence right um, and this has been documented in studies. Um, uh, on, uh, I believe it was Batson's studies in the 80s and 90s. Uh, on uh, the, I forget what it's called. I think it's called um, it, it's some religious text they the people were reading. Um, and the the question was essentially: if you have someone encounter ideas about being altruistic, um, and then have them um, be asked to spend a few minutes helping someone, um, does it change their behavior significantly? Um, if they are in a rush uh, and are told to like you know get their ass over to the you know the next building for the next part of the study or if they have a few minutes to spare and what was found was that the uh, the, the time pressure was more of a significant factor in determining whether or not the people would stop in the batson studies um, in the good Samaritan studies uh, than what they were reading mm. um, they could have been reading something on how altruistic someone was um, i.e. the uh, the Sermon of the Good uh, Samaritan, um or they uh, were in the control group where they didn't read anything connected to being a good Samaritan. Um, and they found that people who were encountering and, you know, speaking these ideas of being a good Samaritan were not any more likely uh, to to be one um than were those uh, who were not uh, you know encountering those ideas, but just had a couple more mints to spare. Um so human decision making within moral context seems to be very very heavily um, depending on situations. So I wanted to ask you about um, how that relates to the field of eccentric risk in regards to times in history where we saw institutions and situations that should have resulted in different behavior than they actually did.
1: Yeah, so I'm now going to answer a different part of this question because one of the things that I've experienced from the the effective altruism community and kind of my experience of that is the best argument I can give to someone as to why they should do effective uh, altruist type, you know, type activities, why they should give their money to, you know, existential risk mitigation or to alleviating world hunger or to alleviating animal suffering actually Mm. isn't that this is what they should do. There are Mm. a lot of moral arguments and I really like those moral arguments and, and they form a big part of my day job. But the most motivating thing I can say is you could have this effect. You could alleviate a whole mm. bunch of suffering. You can make a difference. Not that you should do this. Uh, yeah. And I think it—it's very often is the case that we are motivated by what we believe we can achieve, much more than by what we think we ought to do. Absolutely. Um, and you know, I have this thing. I often say to people. So, as an existential risk researcher, I often get argued asked, "What are you most worried about, or what do you think that I should be most worried about?" And my, my stock response, which I still think is a really good one, is I don't want you to worry about any of these things, because worrying about them is not motivational. Mm. Worrying mm. T- says, you know, pull up the covers, you know, like, it, it's just stressful. We don't want to deal with it. <laughs> I would like you to be curious. I think we Mm -hmm. are living at an incredibly interesting time in human history. There are a lot of interesting Mm -hmm. things going on. And we have more power as a species than we ever had before and than any other species in this planet's history has ever had before. And we Mm -hmm. have a lot of really interesting choices about what we do with that power. And I think Mm -hmm. being curious and asking the question about what we can achieve and what is possible and maybe what definitely is not possible, what we are going to have to put up with, Those are really interesting questions. And I think once you start to have an answer to those questions, the motivation comes very naturally. You don't need someone to say, you know, so you could destroy all of humanity or you could do this other thing. And (laughs) destroying all of humanity is bad, so you should do this other thing. That second part of the sentence isn't necessary. And focusing too Mm. much on that, it really gets in the way of... um, of motivating people. So yeah, I think one of the things as an existential risk researcher we really need to do is to create other futures that people can envision and people can engage with and people can feel part of. Make sure Mm. that these are actually well suited to the purposes that we want to use them for. So they they are actually going to reduce the risk. That, That I think is the big thing that existential risk research can help to do because there are a lot of bad ideas about this that I think would actually do a lot more harm than good. Um, so make sure that yeah. these are good futures, and then just get them out there and I think that that is enough but yeah I'm also a moral philosopher, and I also care about moral philosophy, so I don't want to give up on it entirely, but I don't think its place is actually in the kind of the p r department i think it's its place is actually much more prior to that in terms of thinking for ourselves about what a good future is and what we kind mm. of want to do this thinking about what what we want to show is possible or might be possible uh not. Actually persuading people to do it.
0: can I ask uh, so pushing back a little bit i i'm 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 curious in terms of um, sort of intellectual communication of the larger ambitions of of the field, there is some portion of that um whether it's you know going on on stage and lecturing about um effective altruism or eccentric risk work um to a specific demographic or or, or whatnot um, there's a certain point where you, you have to start breaking in to those moral questions and that, 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 that technical moral, um, philosophy. Mm. Um, so I want to ask what are sort of normative approaches to explaining, uh, effective altruism and X risk to folks. Um, and it sounds like from wh- what you've said so far that you don't think that normative explanation is, um, typically worth giving, uh, right. Uh, is, is that, am I understanding you correctly there?
1: I don't think it's worth starting from the perspective that you need to get someone to adopt a particular normative point of view. And that's the first perfect. That's beautiful.
0: Yeah, please go on.
1: So I do think we need to engage with people's normative views. And in particular, I Mm. think, at least within academia, there's a problem at the moment that certain people believe that existential risk is not for them because Mm. they believe that it has a certain set of normative commitments, that you have to be this kind of long-term utilitarian or this, for, for whatever reason, you, this just isn't your cup of tea. This isn't the stuff that should be concerning you. So mm-hmm. in so much as I'm engaged in kind of frontline uh, moral philosophy at the moment, my main job is to try and deconstruct some of that and show that actually I think people with quite a wide range of normative points of view can and should care about human extinction and for broadly the same reasons. Um, but mm. I actually see my goal less as persuading people to take up that position, as just showing them that that position is in fact completely compatible with whatever else they they believe. So, in particular, people who reject utilitarianism who mm. maybe adopt contractualism or deontology precisely mm. because they know they don't want to accept some of the the sort of the aspects of, of utilitarianism that that they don't like also believe that this means that they shouldn't care about existential risk. And I think that is, mm. that's a very fallacious point of view. Uh, and the onus is actually on them to show why human extinction is not also an incredibly important moral subject from a deontological or contractualist point of view.
0: And I specifically building off of that, because that is such a brilliant point. I, I really, really appreciate that. Uh, Gosh, you! I'm so like the SJ. It's so much fun chatting with you. I always have like so much fun. Um, but specifically building off of that, recently, uh, I, I've been really interested in, in thinking about um existential risk work and effective altruism work, uh, and you know viewing it as a form of care. Um, Whether it's, you know, it can sound kind of um, hippy dippy at times and say like, you know, an act of love for like humanity. Um, But I I do think in its its root essence, uh, it is an expression of, uh, you know, our our best attempt at rationally caring for um, things that we deeply do value and do actually care about um, in a way that is um, perhaps counter to um, some. Uh, moral intuitions that have led us in the past and now are kind of being re-examined uh, and, and, and re-determined through uh, like equilibrium, right? Um, but nonetheless, it's just, I, I wanted to hear your take on this idea that x risk is a form of care, both for the world today and for future generations.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think it's it's a beautiful idea and it's definitely something I feel, this kind of visceral sense of, Uh, love for humanity and actually Mm. it is it is not just about an abstract sense of value and that's certainly how i always feel about it you know i think yeah one of the one of the things i do think a lot about is that that society has changed a huge amount um in 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 a short period of time but actually the amount of time that human beings have had to adapt to this change is actually less than you think The reason being that you spend a large chunk of your life being socialized by your parents into the ways that were helpful or that they perceived to be helpful to them to engage with the world. Mm. Um, And then you have a certain amount of time in which to kind of reflect on that and think about whether that's right or not, whether that's something that you agree with or not, And then if you're (laughs) going to have children, if you're going to bring in the next generation, you then then take on that role of actually socializing socializing the next generation into whatever you Mm. thought was the right thing to do. So it's not actually the case that each of us, in my mind anyway, kind of gets 70 years to adjust to the changes that have happened in our lifetime. I think Mm. we're actually still really adjusting to the changes that happened in our parents and our grandparents' lifetimes that they Mm. didn't have enough time to figure out before having to pass that information on to us. Uh, Mm. And so we get we get a partial draft and we come into it halfway through and everyone's trying to do this all at the same time. But yeah, so so for instance, you know, roughly speaking, I reckon you get about 10 years between when uh, actually uh, I'll give another, uh, just a brief example of this. I don't know if you've heard of this. Douglas Adams had this kind of argument that kind of, he said, everything that happens before you're 15 is just kind of exactly how the, how the world works. You know, the internet came (laughs) into my life when I was about 10 years old and I I cannot imagine a world without it. I try and remember that there was a time I was alive that the Wide web didn't even exist. And there was a time when it existed, but I wasn't connected to it. But it's just always been the case for me that the internet has been around.
0: I think about that in terms of uh, Minecraft and YouTube. Yeah, exactly. Um, Both very (laughs) valuable.
1: Like loads of things. um, And then he says, you know, everything that happens between when you're 15 and when you're about 30 is new and exciting and like Mm. really important. And it's where you can probably build a career. And then everything that happens after you're 30 is a complete abomination and should, you know, is, is very dangerous and really should never have been allowed to happen.
0: So there's a jaded curve to history exactly. of individuals.
1: But, and, I, and you know he's using that as comedy. And it's a really funny way of thinking about the world. And I think it's really true. Mm, but there actually yeah. is a deeper sense in this, which is, yeah, un- until we're 15, until we're oh, 18 or 20 now, we get so much handed down to us and we're told that this is how it is and yeah i think we have about 10 years on average and each generation has had about 10 years at most to mm. to adjust to this these new things that are coming along that that you know we we believe belong to us and are interesting and impactful before we actually do set everything in our ways and start handing it on to to the next generation so if you mm. think about the last 200 years i don't actually think we've had 200 years in any of our kind of lineages, we haven't had 200 years of time that any individual could spend adjusting to that. I think we've had about 60 years of that. And all the rest of that time in my life, my parents' life, my grandparents' life, you know, my great-grandparents' life, uh, um, has has been about just kind of taking what was given to them or passing on to the next generation. And then you kind of come out of the... Yeah, come out of the stream of life and, and you're not, not impacting it and not trying to impact on it in the same way. Now, obviously mm. that kind of time is unequally distributed and so on because there's not it's not literally just sixty years when people have been adapting. But I don't think we really have really got our minds around, you know, the telegraph, or got our minds around that point in history when all of a sudden you could talk instantaneously, you could send a message instantaneously to anyone anywhere else in the world. Yeah. It's We still really do engage with people like they are right next to us, because for almost all of human history, that has been the only way that you can do this. And now, you know, we're engaging with social media and we've just had 18 months, two years of only really living our lives with these virtual messages and these long distance messages. Mm. And We have to do that, but we're not very good at it because we're still really recovering from the shock of the telegraph and the postal service and all these other things. Um, and yeah, if if you'd imagined one person living the last 200 years, I think they would have made decisions very differently to the way that we've had to do it because all the decisions have to be taken intergenerationally and the information gets passed on. Oh, that is, that, and, that's absolutely fantastic. So, you know, I think in terms of this EA as care, yeah, hmm. I think a lot of this is saying okay let's step back from this and let's look at this from the long term point of view because we know that we are as individuals deeply entrenched in one particular context but we also know that there's a lot more than that at stake here and and we we need to sort of we need to consider a much wider range of information and i think it makes sense mm. that that's one way that we do this we are kind of trying to help humanity to do some of the change that it needed to do, but that's actually really hard for us and, and and really difficult. And that motivation and the reallocation of funding I think is 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 a way that we can kind of accelerate and implement some of that change. But I do, do you, also do you... think it is oh, yeah. really hard for us, right? It's not like we have a magic <laughs> bullet for escaping all of this stuff. But yeah, yeah, it's it's what we're trying to do. It's the goal.
0: Do you think do do you reckon? So I I I, I recognize that um, naturally where this is headed is towards a really lovely conversation on on um, transhumanism and um, long termism. Um, so I, I'm I'm curious before we we go there, just on this sort of branch of thought, uh, do you do you reckon that uh, catastrophes right historically the the great unveiling right as like the the ancient Greek word for mm. um, apocalypse um, translates to do you see those periods of crisis as a genuine potential reset, and therefore to be one of the reasons why within our moral tra- or within our um like storytelling traditions, uh, times of disaster and catastrophe seem to like be really, really encapsulated in such a way that is more than just the material damage they cause. <laughs> they seem to they seem to be yeah. a time of of opportunity, right? And this isn't to say that, disasters or existential threats are in any way, therefore, like more ethically valuable. No, it's like, it's, it's, it's catastrophe. It's something that we have to, uh, to work against. Right. Um, and that, you know, we, we have the ability to build a better future, um, is, is really how I I think you are, are saying it should be phrased. Um, but nonetheless, like, yeah, what do you, what do you think of that, that notion that, um, catastrophes and how does it connect to this idea, um, that you're talking about in terms of this generational lack of, uh, value reset and assessment?
1: Yeah. So catastrophe has, as you say, a lot of different meanings and Mm. within this community, and we talk about global catastrophic risk, and it is seen as the largest amount of damage. And that's the kind of definition that catastrophe has in our culture. And that's absolutely right. But as Mm. you say, kind of, it didn't, it didn't used to mean that. Um, it, It used to mean just a sort of a great change. And that could be that could be many different forms, you know, and I think that the, the sort of the emergence of electronics in our lives and what that did to human relationships was, in that older sense, a catastrophe. It didn't harm people, but it just greatly changed everything and how we had to relate to it. You know, the advent of AI is also going to be a catastrophe. It might not be a bad thing, but it will be a great destruct- destroyer of much that has gone before and of, of, of many different ways of life, you know. Mm. And we really want to put this evaluation on top of it. But we have to remember that the agricultural revolution 10,000 years ago, you know, was it a good thing or a bad thing? I think any sensible individual needs to answer that question with, I don't know. It's Mm. it's way too early to say. We know (laughs) that the agricultural revolution did a huge amount of harm.
0: And yeah. I, I mean, think, <laughs> tooth decay.
1: <laughs> it's a great yeah. example. <laughs> it, it's really easy to make the case that it was a bad thing. It's also really easy mm. to make the case that it was a good thing. Right. I think at the moment mm. there is a sort of intellectual trend to say, Oh, that was definitely terrible. Like we we should never have done that. You know, life in the paleolithic was just fantastic. Like, <laughs> actually, I don't think it was. I think it was incredibly different. And yeah. <laughs> different in ways that probably transcend our ability to, to really evaluate these two things but mm. there were there were huge costs associated with agriculture whether those costs can really be said to have been matched by benefits we still don't know yet we're still we're still probably at a stage now where it's up to us if we can find sustainable ways to you know carry on existing within earth's biosphere with the technologies and the population that we currently have or we can find ways to escape those limits. It may well be that cosmically, it was a fantastic thing. I think if we don't, if you know society was to collapse at this point, I think there would be a big argument to say that what was the last 12,000 years for? What was the point of all of that? Actually, didn't we create a huge amount of human suffering and animal suffering for no real purpose?
0: Hmm. Those that, bomb shelter discussion, bomb shelter ethicists uh, will be quite the pessimistic lot.
1: Yeah, yeah, I think. But but then, you know, I, I hope that they won't. I hope that they won't spend their time arguing over, oh, that was a waste of time. I hope they're going to think <laughs> about what we should do next, right? How we could do it better next time. And yeah. <laughs> to some extent, you know, the, this question about whether human history up to this point has been worthwhile it's uh, it's not a very useful question for us to ask, but it is still mm. fascinating that it is not a question that we can really answer. And given mm. how readily we do make moral judgments about things, it does feel like we should, <laughs> we should be able to answer this question. Uh, and if we want to make these sweeping moral judgments about future changes, and we know there will be catastrophes, we know they will be great bringers of change... But whether they will be for good or bad, it's really hard to say. So in some senses, maybe the older meaning of catastrophe is a more useful one. Mm. And yeah, it's really about how do we navigate these great changes that are happening right now and will happen in the future in in ways that take account of what they mean to people. And that. <sighs> That are that are careful, that are wise, that are not. Well, at least we're not going to make any really obvious mistakes. Really, sort of mm. oh bummer! I really should have sort of that kind of mistakes. That yeah. that seems to me like the 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 more realistic aim to have here, rather than to say that we we can know necessarily what is best.
0: Well, um, it, it seems. Yeah. It, it seems that uh, in, in in regards to this question of um, the sort of consequential. Uh, a trap sometimes of saying, well, uh, the only way that we can assess the value of uh, a, a situation or a decision is, uh, you know, ultimately can only be considered on uh, data points that are farther ahead, right? Um, and, and there's ways to mitigate this, right? Um, there's like a proximal um, or sort of uh, the capped um, time variables you can use for like utilitarian judgments um, and all that stuff, but I, I I think taking another approach towards this question of what existential threats and what these catastrophes, um, using the old world sort of termination or uh you know uh definition of the word catastrophe, like what these catastrophes can mean for humanity, um, specifically speaking to the people who will probably be listening to this podcast, um, you know I, I hope it's not just some like you know twenty fifth century. Uh, art like digital archaeologists coming back, listening through it. Um, you know, I, I hope it's people in the 21st <laughs> century right now. Um, and for some reason, our audience doesn't skip this episode completely, right? But talking to these people who will be listening to this episode, um, I I think what eccentric risks can mean, uh, is is a form of of uh, sort of uh in, like uh, individual sort of um coming about, right? Mm. Uh, Viktor Frankl talks about. Um, struggle ceasing, uh, excuse me, suffering ceasing to be suffering as soon as it becomes meaningful. And I think that through working to build a better world, um, in some way, you're not only working on, um, you know, in line with a lot of basic psychological human needs, um, that, you know, the, the literature on flourishing has really demonstrated to be accurate. I'm talking community, I'm talking a, a sense of purpose, I'm, I'm, you know, all these things, but you also in a more, you know, Jungian sense, or, or sort of psychological sense, uh, are working to cultivate yourself in a direction, mm. right, that can be really, really valuable. And this this brings its own potential issues, right? Because obviously, if your sense of identity is wrapped up in the extra risk work you're doing, um, then the likelihood of you sticking to uh, your guns in situations where you should really give them up, um, you know, goes up, right? So there, there's definitely implications here that need to be thought out and, and, and articulated differently. Um, however, the root sense of by working on these catastrophes this century, I can figure out what it means to be alive today as me and as someone within my community and as someone um, just within the world. Um, I, can, I can find my own values. I can assess what I actually care about through doing this work. Um, I, I think that that is a very, very wonderful idea um, that poses existential risk involvement EA involvement in a way that is graspable for people. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I'm sure you get this, you know, people say, oh, existential risk, that sounds like a really,
0: you know, gloomy field to be involved yeah. in. I hope you're <laughs> they okay. they always say, oh, fun at parties, aren't you? And I go, actually, yeah, talking about extra risk at parties is a great time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> because, like, I wouldn't, I would know about the risks that we were facing, even if I wasn't in this community, even if I was doing something mm. very different, I would still know, people do know, and they do worry. And... Mm. I am pretty sure that there is nothing better that I could be doing than the work that I am actually doing. You know, there isn't, yeah, there isn't some better way that I could use my time. And actually when you are dealing with risks that involve, you know, huge amounts of death, destruction, the suffering, all of the other things, that's a real comfort. It's a real consolation Mm. that at least, you know, at least, you know, you're trying.
0: Exactly. And this is something that is, uh, I, I've tried to get across in a recent q a that i did did for our, our patrons um because you know close friends had been like why like why this thing and you know it's I, i'm someone who, who tends to be very enthusiastic i i like to live life in a way that's affirmed right um i i, I was nihilistic for too long <laughs> and quickly realized that the the cultural uh, uh soup that uh i was you know being baked in um was so heavily influenced by the forces of uh catastrophes of, of potential catastrophes of past cultural catastrophes um that, you know, I had to uncover these. I had to think about these, right? And I'm, I'm talking about the death of meaning. I'm talking about, um, you know, the historical decline of, of traditional routes to how people, you know, had a sense of purpose. Um, I'm talking about the decline of, of faith in institutions. And I'm uh, also talking about um, like material, uh, like hazards, like climate change. Mm. And it's something that young people today um, who, who predominantly make up our audience uh, it, it's something that there's a, a perspective shift. I feel generationally where we have been brought up in that world of climate change ever since, ever since I was, I was youngest. I remember, and I've, I've never talked to someone in the field about this. Um, and it'd be interesting to see your, your reading on it, but, um, it's quite funny. I got into X risk eventually. It, it's completely perplexed my family because when I was a kid, all of my anxiety was directed at, Oh my God, the world's going to end oh my god and it was over the most like uh, like it was over the most silly things at times as well right um, and there was this hyper fixation that was an expression of of like anxiety or perhaps OCD or something um that didn't resolve until I was 12 13 14 probably 15 um, and I remember before that point it caused me to recognize the risks were there but to skirt away their analysis right to not actually sit down and look at the facts because I felt like I couldn't bear it and as soon as I started to realize that, Oh, I could actually bear it. And more importantly, by looking at the facts, you come into contact with the names of people who are doing research, who are highly accredited, who are highly brilliant, caring, wonderful human beings, and they are dedicating themselves to fixing this. Right. And each one of those people you uncover is one rational reason for hope in this context. Right. And that is worth so much more from a moral motivation standpoint. Than fear and fatalism will ever be. So, Twenty First Talks is largely a podcast about like finding and you know sniffing out this strain of nihilism and pessimism that growing up under the weight of global catastrophes like climate change and the sort of uh cultural malou of of pessimism of our time um, that's so baked into youth culture today. I like it, I am actively trying to, to sniff those out because that doesn't motivate. <laughs> that that strips. Uh, from people's ability to take action.
1: So I agree with almost everything you say though. The the one thing I take the one thing I push back against is is the exceptionism. You know, I I remember I remember talking to my father about the Cuban Missile Crisis. And Mm. he would have been I think he was fourteen at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And he said, yeah, he remembers. He remembers where he was when you know they, they they were talking about the you know, the photos that show that the nuclear missiles were in Cuba and addresses by Kennedy and so on, that almost everyone who is alive now mm. has at some point in growing up had to deal with potentially potential existential catastrophes. So, you know, mm. th- there were people in, in the 1940s who really got this. But yeah, I think yeah, the first time true. it was really kind of, a global phenomenon was the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that can I, can, that is oh, yeah, such okay. a big thing in, you know, baby boomers' youths. Like it mm. was, it was really big news, and people really feared that the world was ending. And then yeah. again, in kind of in the 1980s, and with Star Wars and with the Nuclear Winter hypothesis, again, mm. kind of ejects, <laughs> thanks Carl Sagan, it was a, it was a huge <laughs> thing. There was a moment of real terror, and then yeah. I think yeah, with with millennials and again with Gen Z, it's it's got it's got very much the same hallmark. So I think mm. every generation for so long now has actually grown up under the pool of existential risk. I think what has changed a huge amount is people's ability to engage with it. So, mm. you know, in the 1960s, there was a big anti-nuclear movement and people got very involved in it and, and lots of young mm. people did. And there was also this thing that, the committee of the one hundred, where there were people who just like Extinction Rebellion today, you know, they said, "Right, we're just going to go out and get arrested because that's the way to, to make publicity." So that was there, and mm. there was kind of lobbying leaders, but there was this sense of this amorphous lump of power in the world, and all you could do was kind of assault it. Um, but this this yeah. power was very small number of people in very powerful positions, and they still had all this respect and so on. What's, what what mm. has changed? Is I think two things. Firstly, we now don't view these risks as being so centralised. They are now we now view them as much more dispersed, concerning all of us. Mm. And secondly, that the way that we respond to these risks is now it's now more coordinated. You know, I think the emergence of a field that studies existential risk in the early two thousands is a very prominent thing. It's no longer just I'm concerned about this one thing, so I'm going to go and really shout about it. It's now actually you can go and study existential risk as a phenomenon and look up all sorts of ways that we can deal with it that aren't just about telling the powerful people not to do the bad things, but that, yeah, yeah, really kind of understand why this risk is there and what we can do to reduce it. And that creates all sorts of opportunities that just weren't there in the past for people to, to make use of this. So you don't. You don't need to develop that shield of fatalism and mm. uh, you know cynicism that I think people had to in the past because there just really wasn't wasn't much for them. There wasn't much that they could that they could do.
0: Oh, that's that's brilliant. I so uh, I, I guess two points as a response. I I really want to hear your take on. Um, the, the first is uh, I'm a big fan of the existential psychological work of Viktor Frankl, um, mm. who I, I mentioned earlier, and in a recent translation. Um, that was just like it essentially it was it was written and uh, it was a lecture he performed or he gave to college students, um, undergrads, um, uh, I believe 11 months after he got released from a Nazi death camp mm. um, at the end of World War II, And he in this in this lecture, he essentially says I, I have the quote like on uh, like always in front of me. Um, he says uh, he, he's talking about the feeling of living in a post-war period. Um, and he, he's saying that at that time, 11 months after World War II, they're, they're living in some way in a, in a typical post-war period. Um, but, quote, um, although I'm using a somewhat journalistic phrase here, the, spa- the state of mind and the spiritual condition of an average person today is most acu- acutely described as uh, bombed out. Um, and this alone would be bad enough, he notes. Um, but he says, quote, by feeling that, or it is um, exasperated by it, once again, feeling that we are yet again living in a kind of pre-war period. The invention of the atomic bomb is feeding the fear of a catastrophe on a global scale and a kind of apocalyptic end of the world mood has taken hold of the last part of the second millennium. And so he's talking about the birth of the atomic section, right? We're talking about, you know, one of the big four um, is, is born in this, uh, the public perception of it is born out in, at least for him, these 11 months um, in in central europe um in the mind of a very acutely very uh, you know adept at perceptive or a, a very adept and perceptive um, psychologist right um and you know despite him rebuilding his life immediately after and doing what he could to find meaning once again um this sense of living in a pre-war period so soon after World war II because of the invention of the atomic bomb is already laying a sense of of um pessimism and, and doubt and, that, and you're saying that based off of the ways that we can engage with existential risks today despite the challenges of them being so decentralized um or in some ways decentralized in other ways absolutely not uh luke if you're listening um i <laughs> that's not what i meant um, i'm gonna get an angry email from luke um, uh but um so like you're, you're saying that today there isn't the same uh, there there, there might, may be the same perception, but the, the response can be wholeheartedly different yeah. um, because of things like effective altruism and things like existential risk as a centralized yeah. field. I, definitely.
1: I, I also think, and it kind of sends a, a shiver down my spine when you read that quote, because he's talking about the creation of the atomic bomb in, in the mm-hmm. latter halves of World War II. And he knows about that. He knows mm-hmm. that that risk has just entered the world. Yeah, he doesn't know about the other risks that have just come into existence that we now look back and we can say, you know, artificial intelligence had its birth at the same time and for yep. the same purpose. Um, you know, and, and it wasn't long at all before Alan Turing, at least, was kind of arguing that, you know, this 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 technology will will come to replace humanity. And like, we should be really worried about that. Um you know, and he doesn't like, he doesn't get to do much with it. He, he he comes out on the air and the BBC kind of just a few months before he gets arrested and there's this terrible oh process that leads to his death. But, you know, yeah, sort of. He, he's very aware of that and this technology and what it could mean. You know, we've also, right up at the same time, we've had the kind of, firstly, the first serious biological weapons programs are instigated during the Second World War. And mm. also we know that, you know, in Cambridge, they are like, they're they're nearly there with the, the sequencing of DNA and understanding how we can manipulate life and all of this stuff, which leads to a, a huge explosion and and all these kind of biological risks that we now have to deal with. Um and also the other thing that happens mm. at exactly the same time is what this kind of uh uh this this great acceleration, you know, in the 30 years after World War II the global population increases like never before industrial output increases you know faster than it ever has in, in terms of sort of rate of change ever has or quite likely ever will in the future the you know pollutions increase like the the soil degradation increases the the way that we engage with the biosphere is completely transformed in a very short period of time because people have just learned from the mobilization of world war 2 about what can be achieved and they're just going to put those same industrial strategies to use in civilian uh contexts and will completely revolutionize industrialization because throughout the 19th century and even the 20th century up to world war ii the economic growth is not that fast we look back at it Mm. at this big revolution but actually it wasn't um it it was it was faster than it had ever been before and it was there was a really like steady increase, but actually year on year change was not that great it's It's in World War two and it's taking these lessons of mobilization that have been learned and applying them in a peacetime context that is actually the the real the real industrial revolution that our species had and and the way that kind of consumer culture reaches everyone in in a really transformative way so we can now look back at it and say actually that war that they've just been through that has unleashed four different You know what will turn out to be existential catastrophes. The big four have all come in at the same time and basically for the same reason because the Second World War gave people both the opportunity and the resource to work on more or less whatever they wanted to do and to make massive progress in doing that. Hmm. And that's going to change humanity forever and we still haven't really got to grips with how to govern that, how to respond to that. So yeah, I find that quote even more... Kind of spine tingling and prophetic than you describe it. Um, mm. That oh, moment, I, when I, and and, and yeah. the echoes that it's still it's still having for us.
0: I remember when I when I first read that. Um, it's it's a translation um, by Daniel Goldman, um, and like I said, this is the first time it's been translated to English, and it was 2020 is when it was done. Mm. Um, I'm hoping to get Goldman on the the podcast soon. Um, but uh, you know, Victor Frankl has been incredibly influential in my ability to. Um, you know, the the way that I see it personally is stamped to the call to action um for existential risk work that you know comes from this internal desire to um live a flourishing life, right? Um and I I think that when I first read that, you you gotta see that I'm gonna have to send you a photo of the the book, SJ, because my my copy has like I'm not exactly at least sixty different pages marked. like with um with like uh in in just entire sheets of just scribbling um just like all of my replies mm-hmm. to it um and that note specifically i remember when i read that i had to put the book down and go on a walk um for at least an hour and a half it was absolutely ridiculous how powerful that was um and it the way that i i tend to think about it and you know you're significantly more knowledgeable than i am about you know the the history of of risk Um. Although I'm hoping get to uh to to your your uh, your point of conception and and reading uh, on on the topic one day. Um. But it seems that World War One was the psychological blow to the sort of uh, old mindset, right? Um. And even from that, we're still recovering. Yeah. And and like this is true when we look at like the course of uh, the death of meaning. Um. At least in um. uh, At least like in the in the West, right? Um. Which I'm I'm not trying to centralize the conversation on um but you know from talking about like the cultural uh heritage or the sort of cultural history that um I'm accustomed to firsthand here in the US like that's absolutely true that's the same time when you know all these massive cultural shifts that were expressed in part be- like in art and stuff but also in the work of Tolkien I've been working on a piece for for 21st talks for some time now on um the psychology of World War 1 and, and what it means for the 21st century yeah. um in terms of this sense that like maybe progress isn't so good, um, which is a, a claim that I disagree with, right? But it's something that was baked into Tolkien's perspective because of the tragedies of World War I, because of the mechanization of World War I. And I think that we're still recovering from that. So no doubt we're still recovering from World War II, but that seems like it's more of a material realization and, and shift, right, that you're you're talking about.
1: Yeah. I think, you know, I can't, I kind of want to say to that, yeah, World War One was a big psychological blow, but actually, World War One happened the way it happened in part because people hadn't recovered from the Franco-Prussian War and the American <laughs> War of uh, you know, the. Uh, American Civil War, right? Th- those two. We're, we're gonna the work two... our way
0: all the way back. Those <laughs> were the
1: first two really <laughs> mechanized wars, and then in the first world war, people were like, okay, we know that the, like this mechanization can be incredibly tragic. So we're all just gonna have to throw everything at it. And they do that. <laughs> um, because they got kind of caught on caught on the hop with those two previous wars. But you know, those two wars very much affected by the French Revolution. And mm. I don't know, like <sighs> there is a lot. There is a lot of going back to the point I was making earlier about kind of Mm. how little time we've had to adapt, you know, you, you were raised by someone who was raised by someone who was raised by someone who fought in the first world war and was Mm. recovering from that trauma. And they, you know, were raised by someone who was raised by someone. And by this point, by the way, we've got six generations back. Now the people we're talking about, almost all of them are illiterate. Okay, that's another thing. I was just going to
0: say they're going to be illiterate. Oh my gosh, <laughs> they're going to be illiterate. They're going to live without electricity.
1: But yeah, you know, that we we as a species we kind of go around collecting trauma. And yeah, we know really good at that from our own personal experience. Every human alive sort of knows how that hangs around in families and how that affects people down the generations. We're really mm. bad at scaling that up and appreciating what that means for humanity as a whole, and that we have mm. gone through so much and we are recovering from so from so much. And I think that is a huge influence on on a lot of things that you see in the world. That we need time. We really we each generation is really trying to deal with its own problems and the problems that were handed down to it but i think for a good long time now we have been handing down more problems than we solve and yeah that's it i don't i don't kind of want to sound like i'm saying that makes our job impossible or even like we should feel really sorry for ourselves or anything i just think no. it's a it's a fact that we have to deal with that yeah this these are the people who are trying to solve all of these problems these are people who keep on having kind of more and more things handed down to them and we are to some extent here trying to trying to fight against that and trying to trying to work out how we can turn the corner and make it so that you know hopefully at some point each generation we can be sure it's it's getting better and better and i think we are making big improvements on that so for instance you know there are now very few children now who are being brought up brought up with physical abuse right it's now really Mm. newsworthy when children suffer terrible physical abuse that used to be completely normal that was not at at all newsworthy maybe it was newsworthy if someone wasn't beating their children on a regular basis right wasn't kind of starving them if they were naughty wasn't doing all of this stuff now we're getting rid of that like You know, Mm. we have got to a stage now where children who are sexually abused are sometimes believed. Mm. People often want to say, it's terrible, you know, like this stuff is happening and it is terrible. It's completely terrible. But 30, 40 years ago, almost no children were ever believed because they were children. And if the adults disagree with them, then the adults are telling the truth. Like that's, that's an amazing thing that we're kind of getting there. Um, Mm. You know, there's a bunch of things like that where things are improving. The, the number of children who are growing up hungry is reducing substantially. That's a really big thing, but it's going to take a long time for the healing effects of those um, those interventions and those changes to really pass down. Because you still have the case that people have had the kind of the experiences that their parents and their grandparents handed on to them, and mm. at the same time, as I say, we are adding a whole bunch of new things onto the pile. So, yeah, the kind of the long-term goal I would like is one where we're, we're still moving. We're still you know, progressing as a species, but hopefully actually each generation is kind of being able to clear out more trauma than it adds. And I think there mm. are definitely reasons to be hopeful and to say that we are making progress on that, but it's still a very substantial problem that we have to face. And it's going to be a long time until we kind of see a reduction in this sort of psychological debt that we've been building up for, for many generations now.
0: Brene Brown I, says uh, trauma is either transformed or transferred, and I, I think that captures um, th- th- this view really closely. And it, it's it's also tricky because oftentimes the, uh, the psychological effects of Getting to a better place, either individually or, or uh, communally, um, oftentimes has a empathy muting effect mm. on individuals. Right, like we we see this from people who come from like my economic background. Right, um, where uh, it, as I become more successful, like I have certain built-in structures to try and anticipate the fact that statistically. Um, I am like, if I climb the economic ladder, I'm likely to become less empathetic to the people who, you know, were in my like working class neighborhood back home. Right. And like, that's something that I need to avoid. And, you know, you have to build, uh, you have to, um, entrench yourself in sort of like reminders to, to reconnect with, with those aspects, um, of, of your history, because you know, I, I personally think it's really important for psychological, um, well-being. Right. But also just for empathy cultivation. And I, and I think that oftentimes, on this process of sort of like collected trauma over generations and that sort of, it, it's almost like a, a trauma fission, right? Uh, one little, one little particle <laughs> shoots into uh, one particle trauma turns into uh, another eight and then it just like progressively gets uh, uh, cataclysmically worse and worse. Um, and that is a force that, like you said, we are trying to work against. And that's a, an incredibly deeply consoling way of looking at extra risk work. Mm. And that's the reason why it's not, unpleasant to talk about at dinner parties <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um Although, because like yeah i i do i do
1: have one problem with talking about it at dinner parties and that's sometimes i feel like and I, and i think this is probably particularly cuz i'm a researcher at cambridge studying this it's like it, it is really intimidating it's not depressing mm. but there is definitely a stage of like oh i people are, I, oh, I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. think about this you know this is like it's like, yes so you clever. can you
0: could totally think about it like <laughs>
1: <laughs> I want you to. I want,
0: yeah. I want
1: everything I do to be something that, you know, would be accessible and usable to everyone. But I think there's a lot of, mm. there's a lot of a kind of, yeah, sense out there that most people's opinion on this doesn't matter or isn't important. And can I, I wish can... it was otherwise.
0: Can I run an idea past you um, sure. about this specific thing that I, I've, I've been thinking about in terms of of X risk work specifically? So, um, I uh, with with a good friend of mine, um, Nathaniel Cook, who, who's done research at at, at Caesar. Yeah. Um, Nathaniel and I started this like reading group for for young people in the field who want community in their pursuit of central risk, right? Um, and it's it's been a tremendously fun time, but. Um, a lot of the critique from our group that we've ran into of, you know, these young people who are really passionate about X-risk and effective altruism, um, is, well, I just wish there was a, like a really straightforward explanation of each of these articles. Right. And you can kind of get that on the EA forums. You can kind of get that from other places. And a part of this, you know, podcast mission is to talk to the experts who are publishing cutting edge research and, you know, hear it from, from their perspective, um, you know, straight out. However, I think it'd be such a fun project to collect, um, like, as as many of the, the you know the most significant papers in X Risk and, and and EA, um, and just write like an extended, very very accessible um, uh, breakdown of all the findings and views, um, in part through working with the, the the people. And I know I know um, this the Caesars uh, PR um, does that to a, a certain extent, right? By having um, like breakdowns, um, but having a centralized place where it's just like a list of you know the articles and a really accessible breakdown that's marketed in a really nice accessible way um that almost can get people to not realize they're reading you know a a breakdown of a um incredibly um you know a a esteemed scholar at like cambridge or oxford because it is intimidating especially when you put that name on it right and i think that like i just it'd be so much fun to do that as like a like a, a summer internship or something right I mean, I I do
1: think there's there's probably a certain element of misselling here because, Mm. for me, one of the exciting things about doing something like this is, I'm not having to break everything down so much. If I'm writing an academic paper, people kind of think a bit about is this big monumental complex thing, but actually, it's not. You know, a lot of writing a paper is about absolutely paring everything down to the bone and just giving Mm. it in the most kind of direct technical description of what you're talking about it is mm-hmm. this yeah. is the really simple accessible version that is what scientific writing is all about it's yeah. much more fun to have a conversation where you're not trying to close off everything off and make it all really simple and straightforward and you're going to accept that some of the things we're talking about are quite complex and yeah absolutely and, and tricky and that's fine and it's up to you the listener to make up your own interpretation of this and kind of play along with the game. I'm I'm demanding a mm. lot more of you in the conversation that we're having right now than I would if you went and read one of my papers. And I think that's that's a good thing and I think that is actually what you want. I, so I think it's it's not so much about the simplification and representation of information. I think it's actually firstly about removing as you say that kind of intimidation the language the mm. kind of stamp that gets put on things but also it's about presenting in a way that people feel that it is okay to play along at home you know if you have a strong yeah. opinion about what we're saying that's a really good thing whereas when you're reading a scientific paper you you feel like you're shut out from it you feel like this is the truth mm. um, because that's what the the language is aimed at so do you know i think it does sound like an exciting project but i also I think it can go the wrong way. And I think you have to find a way Mm. of presenting them that makes it interesting and accessible because it sounds like the sort of actually somewhat inconclusive and very deep conversations that we're used to having about this, not the Mm. actually quite simplified, precise, and usually very conclusive presentations that we offer within the scientific literature.
0: Mm. Yeah, precisely. And I think that's one of the reasons why, um, specifically the, um, the approach... That um, I'm, I'm really interested in, in EA or in EA and risk communication um, is so sorry about that. Um, but the, specifically, the approach I'm, I'm really really interested in um, is an interdisciplinary approach that doesn't only bring in people from tangentially connected communities that currently don't have bridges from X-Risk to them mm. and their existing intellectual discussions and in digital communities, um, but also. Uh, you know, that that this really connects to things that people are already deeply passionate about. And there's a growing amount of, um, you know, online uh, communities and intellectual discussions that have really high engagement about like AI or free will, or like these are like really, these really big questions that previously were very intimidating for people and in many ways still are, but are becoming more accessible. And I think a big part of that has been um, creators' abilities to connect these really big ideas Two things that are graspable in people's day to day lives, and it's I think it's it's given me tremendous hope to see you know how accept, how um, popular long form podcasts have become, um, that are with very technical experts in part because it it shows something that you know I've I've suspected for quite a while, which is you know people are smart, <laughs> people are interested, people are curious, people want to be in the know, and I think making X risk more accessible emotionally through connecting it. Um, to uh, things that people care about and putting it in terms um, that are real, that are, that are accurate, and are also that are, as you're saying, gripping, mm-hmm. um, I think is, is some of the best things I can, I can do as someone who wants to communicate these things. Yeah. Um, so I, I appreciate you coming on the, the podcast today. Uh, we're going to have to, to wrap up, but I, we didn't even get to like half the questions that I wanted to. So hopefully it'll be a, um, a, a third discussion we can have at some point in the future. But uh, thank you so, so much, SJ. Oh, well,
1: that's great.